Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 21st, 2021. My name is Leah M. I'm Recovered Compulsive Overeater and the moderator for this morning. The share ID numbers for Friday, February 19th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,436. That's 16436. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,437. That's 16437. This morning, A Vision for You presents It Works. It really does. Most of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the constant defeat, frustration, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We were in a trap, a vicious cycle, which we could not escape. We come to Overeaters Anonymous looking for a way out, a solution which will free us from the bondage, pain, and suffering of our affliction. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a roadmap of recovery, an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us. As the forward to the first edition states, we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Yes, we are changed. Yes, we are transformed. We are changed in the way we think. We are changed in the way we feel. And especially, we are changed in the way we behave. And of course, what distinguishes the 12-step process from self-help programs is that this change is done to us, not by us. It requires our cooperation, absolutely. And it works. It really does. Joining us this morning to share her personal story of transformation as a result of the 12 steps is Sherry M., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. Sherry is dedicated to trudging these 12 steps and is eager to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us on the line this morning. With gratitude, I welcome Sherry M. to the line. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning. Wow, what an introduction. My name is Sherry M., and I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in Los Angeles, Southern California. Wow, what a beautiful intro, Leia, and what a beautiful and unexpected gift to be asked to share my story of transformation and how I got free from compulsive overeating and body obsession with the very group that gave me my freedom and showed me a new way of living that really worked. I want to thank you all for saving my life and for helping me to get recovered with the food, um, with the deadly food obsession and disease. Finding this healthy big book meeting came at the perfect time in my life, and I have come to believe that God's time is always the right time, and my recovery journey has not been a straight line. It has been um, 
ups and downs with lots of transformation in between, which I'm grateful to be able to share today. I also um, want to say that everything that I am today is a direct result of the 12 steps and having a relationship with a higher power that I did not believe in that now is everything to me. This big book is in my heart and soul in a way that it could never be before I found a vision for you. It was in my head and I did the work, but it was not in my everyday action like it is now, like brushing my teeth or drinking water. That's what the big book and the 12 steps mean to me today. I really had a lot of fun trying to find a title for this talk and going to the big book, which is my favorite thing to do, and finding all the one-liners. And, and then I saw it works. It really does. And, um, and I say this statement both with surprise and awe, like, wow, like it works. It really does. I, I'm still in awe that I could be free from this deadly disease that was a daily event for me, eating, thinking about eating, hating my body. I mean, just, I never thought I could have freedom from it. And then I also say that, like, it works, it really does, with enthusiasm. Like, yes, please, please, just do what we say. Just follow the instructions because it, really, it will work. And, um, and the statement, uh, you know, this line, it works, it really does, is on page 88 of the big book at the end of step 11. And, uh, what it, you know, it works is, of course, they're talking about the program and the steps and the result of following the first 11 steps. And then it goes on, of course, to say that we are undisciplined. And I really identify with being undisciplined. And so God disciplines us, is what it says. And then... And then it gives me a warning that says that faith without works is dead. And now I must, you know, carry the message and I must do that every day. And I may do it like my life depends on it. I must do it. And I do that today. And I have to say there is nothing more rewarding than passing on what has been freely given to me. It is one of the biggest highlights of, of my life. And um, and then I also, I took some notes, and I'm here, I have to just say that I was so nervous and anxious about talking, and, and I live in a place, it's a little bit remote in Los Angeles, very silly, and we have horrible cell reception. So I drove about 15 minutes away, and I'm sitting in a parking lot, and I'm going to wait for the sun to come up here. And I'm all alone, and God is with me in the car. And I go to any length today. I do whatever is necessary in order to um, stay another day of being free. You know, how free do I want to be is something that somebody asked me when I found this big book meeting. And I want to be so free today. I'll do whatever it takes. And I just want to, um, you know, if I could just give back a, a, a little bit of what was given to me. I, I still would not be doing justice for, for you know, having my life be saved today. Um, I, and I really love the quote on, the, on page 64 that when the spirit, and this is in my phone every day as a reminder, when the spiritual malady is overcome and we straighten out mentally and physically. And I used to have this backwards um, when it came to the food program. I really thought it was about weight. And, and what I have come to find is I was so far off the mark. And so basically everything that I thought I knew um, needed to be set aside for a whole new experience. So I, I like to go sequential, and I like to um, 
And I, oh, I just want to say one more thing before I kind of tell you my history and where I came from, is that I, I just heard this on a Sandy B talk the other day, and it was every problem I have is due to separation from God, and then every solution I have can be found in connecting and having conscious contact with God. And I truly believe when I do my daily time steps and, and look at my part in things and really, um, you know, continue to watch um, the way that uh, my defects show up and how I'm interacting with the world, this is always what it is, is that I'm either trying to play God or I'm completely separated from God. When I'm connected to God, I don't have any disturbances or fears, and I can go anywhere and do anything. Um, so I just like to set the tone with that, and uh, and I and I, I I wrote these notes that I just shared with you, and then I wrote some other highlights that I'd like to share. But I really wanted God to just talk through me and share what what God needs somebody else to hear today. So I'm just gonna let it flow and trust that that will be okay. So um, I'll turn my headlight off so I don't waste my battery. And here we go. So I was born into a house. Uh, where the feeling was that it would have been better had I not been born. I have an older sister, alcoholism in my home. And uh, my mom would always say, it was seven years later after my sister. So I, I really got the sense and, I, and it was uh, mentioned a few times that, you know, my mom was trying to leave my husband and then here I came. And not only did I come, but I was a very, you know, I was told that I was a very fat baby very big and my mom was five two and so I, I really did her in in the hospital and she had a horrible time delivering me and uh you know the the sense that I got and I was I was a bigger baby than my sister my sister came out of the gate uh you know seven pounds you know tall and you know, she ended up being very thin and I came out eight pounds 11 ounces and um and it was a big baby and I, and I looked back on pictures and it, it was a pretty chubby baby but not Nothing to, you know, um, nothing really out of the ordinary. You know, it was a healthy baby, but I was made to feel that I, I was something wrong with me and that it would have been better. So I came into the world feeling unwanted, unloved, uncared for, and, and like a burden. That's really what it was. I felt like I was a burden. And then I had my sister trying to get rid of me in my crib. Um, and, you know, I've come to see that, you know, there wasn't a lot for her in that home. And she was jealous of me being born. And, and you know, the truth is I came in and I was so cute. I was this little, everyone in my family had dark hair and dark eyes. And I came in with blue eyes and, and blonde hair. And so then I had my grandma commenting that maybe my dad wasn't my dad. So there was a lot of strange mixed messages going on uh, in the house. And my dad was uh, working the graveyard shift. He worked for TWA uh, Airlines. And we lived in this really small apartment we didn't have any money and we lived in a very horrible part of town where um where we were the minority and um i started going to a catholic school uh, for a couple of years and i would walk to school and then kind of neighborhood was uh, i'd be walking home and you know a car would pull up and it was some strange guy asking me if i wanted to get in the car and he had some candy i mean i guess that was the only time i turned down candy there was an intuitive thought which i now know was my higher power you know, it's really important to look, for me, for someone who came in and did not believe in a higher power, to look at all the evidence that there was a higher power all along guiding and directing me. And this was one of them. There was an intuitive thought that said, Sherry, run, don't get in that car. And I did. And I would stay for another day. 
And in, um, in my home, so my parents got a divorce when I was seven, and my sister came to me and asked me who I wanted to live with, as if that was a decision that a seven-year-old should be making. And I'm not quite sure how that turned out, but I, I do know that uh, we got separated. Um, I'm sure they made the decision. I went with my mom, and my sister went with my dad. So we were in two different cities in two different towns, and there was a lot of chaos. My mom started drinking. She became, it was the 1970s. Um, so she became a disco dancer with my uncle, and I was taken to bars a lot of times. And I was a very good kid. I became a chameleon, and I would just sit in the corner and watch and not say anything. And, uh, and then I would go visit my dad on the weekends um, in another horrible apartment. This one was cockroach-ridden, and he worked the graveyard shift. And so what it looked like for me at eight years old was um, having to wait for him to wake up at around or come to from the alcohol at around noon. He would come out. Um, he would walk around in his boxer shorts, teach me how to play poker, show me how to pour his beer, light his cigarette. And, um, and on a bad day, he would imitate uh, Jack Nicholson from The Shining and run around the corner and say, John, here's Johnny with a knife in his hand. It was very scary childhood. And, and he also became um, you know, inappropriate sexually with me. So that was my real father. And then I'd go back to my mom. And my mom was someone who was very concerned with her looks. And to this day, she still is. And, narcissist. and I never heard I love you from anybody. So what, what this did is that I didn't establish a bond with any family member. There wasn't anybody um, anywhere that was, uh, you know, that I could go to and have any kind of emotional attachment to. And, and again, it was just, uh, you know, these things were, were, were events that were happening in my life. Um, and going back to my mom, my mom had to work full time to support me. So I became a latchkey kid. So I would walk to school, walk home, call her and tell her I was home. And then I'd be on my own. And this is when, um, you know, the eating started is around the time that my father was inappropriate with me. So that was about eight years old. And this is when I found going into the cupboard, finding something, uh, at the time, I remember it was a Reese's peanut butter cup. And to me, that, that was heaven on earth. And I put that in my mouth. And I all of a sudden had a different experience with food. And I realized that food was going to um, save me. It was the only thing I loved. I felt like it was the only thing that loved me. And that was um, my relationship up until um, the time of getting home. So, um, yeah. So I, um, we moved around a lot as well, and I'm just, just going to be all over the place, I can tell. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to go with it. Uh, we lived, let's see, from the time I was born to the time I graduated high school, I, I think it was like 13 places, maybe 15. I don't know. I lost track. But it was a lot of, it was a lot of moving. It was a lot of picking up and moving, and uh, all within the same state, but different cities, different schools, and that kind of thing. And so my mom met her boss at her work, and and she attracted another perpetrator. And so she got married to my stepfather when I was nine years old. And now, um, and now all of a sudden we were taken out of poverty and we were provided uh, with a better lifestyle. And, but as a result of that, I had this other man that was inappropriate with me. And, uh, and really, I think this is really what uh, made me so uncomfortable in my skin from just the look and um, he was very concerned with the clothes I was wearing and, and, uh, and my body. So this is when I started really putting on weight. I really wanted to keep the attention off of me, very, very uncomfortable with anybody looking at me. 
And, and um, yeah, and meanwhile, I just want to mention this because this is a huge part of my story, that my, my mom lived her life vicariously through my sister. And um, my sister was the number one in the household. And this has all been actually validated for me, which I'm so grateful. Um, in recovery, we've gone through therapy and things like that with the family. And everyone has admitted that this, this did happen. You know, sometimes I know that my perception could have been very skewed, and I still believe that today. But these things really did happen. So my mom really wanted to be a model growing up, and she couldn't be, and that's what my sister became. And my sister started hanging out with all the celebrities, and she posed in a magazine and as a centerfold. And that is really when my food really took off for me because I was so uncomfortable and shamed about my body and these horrible things were happening with my stepfather at home. And then my sister was in this, um, line, like in the limelight and her pictures were up everywhere and there were none of me. And I always just felt like an afterthought um, or no thought really. You know, it was, it, my whole life revolved around my sister and getting up early and going to uh, ice skating for her and what, what is Deborah going to do? Um, but nothing like, oh, Sherry, do you want to be in a sport? Or what would you like to do? So um, I say all these things to just tell you how I came into program. And, um, and you know, I found my solution. Like I said, I found my solution in food. I started having a really abnormal relationship with food where I, I was a bottomless pit. I could not stop eating. And, and I would sneak food. And my mom was a baker, and she didn't. She never said I love you or talk to me. I'd have. I, I never wanted to have friends over, but if I did, what she would do is open the door. She wouldn't say hi to them, and then she would just start cleaning compulsively, like after every footstep that we took in the house. So it was very. Um, I can, you know, I find humor in some of this. Some of this stuff is like, where did this come from? And I've, I've done. I've had a lot of outside help for it, and. You know, really is, I really truly believe that what works, you know, it works, it really does. It comes back to the 12 steps. There is nothing too big for these 12 steps. There is nothing too, uh, in my experience, there has been nothing too painful, too um, heartbreaking that the 12 steps could not help me with, in conjunction with outside help. And then the fact that I, like a lot of, outside helping told me, like, it's a miracle, Sherry, that you are not living under a bridge with a needle in your arm. Yes, I truly believe that's true, and the reason why is because of these 12 steps and because of my higher power. So my relationship with my sister was one of really bitter jealousy, of course. Jealousy and then just um, uh, no sense of self, so really below self-esteem. And so I I started eating, eating, eating. The weight showed up on my body. I'm going to say, uh, well, actually, we're moving, right? My husband and I are getting ready to move out of state in July. So yesterday, as a matter of fact, we were going to, we have to get our house ready to rent, and then we're moving, so we're, like, organizing everything. And I found all these pictures, and, um, and it was unrecognizable. My husband didn't recognize me. And my sophomore year in high school was, very overweight. I would say 30, 30, 40 pounds. The only reason why I, I see now that it wasn't more is because, like I said, I, I lived in a household where it wasn't allowed, first of all. I was taken to diet doctors. So my mom like, would bake all these items. I'd come home. I would binge on them, and then she would hand me laxatives when I was in high school, or she would take me to the diet doctor. 
the message that I got was that if I didn't look like my sister, who was a size zero and two, I would never amount to anything and I would never have love. So I, I, I knew that, you know, putting on weight was not going to be accepted. I'm um, just like telling my mom what my stepfather was up to is not going to be acceptable. You know, I, was, I was afraid for my life and I just went along with the rules in the house. And what happened is I started finding other substances as well. And when I, and a year later, when I became a junior in high school, I had lost all that weight as a result of using the solution that I found to compulsive overeating, um, which was hardcore drugs. So that, that was my solution to not eating. Nothing could stop me from eating except for some street drugs. So that's what I did. And I did um, cocaine and crystal meth, and I, I'm going to really keep the focus. I, I, I like it when people keep the focus on the program they're in. And, um, but it is a huge part of my story because that is how I maintain my weight and some sort of sense of semblance. Mind you, I was killing myself on a daily basis um, with drugs and alcohol. And from the time I was 16, um, until I was 33, uh, this is what I did daily. And every day I would pray for God to let me live through the night and so that I could, you know, stop this nonsense, you know, so I could get, get clean. And every night I thought I was going to overdose. And the only reason why I was doing these drugs is to not gain weight. And, and the days that I would come down from the drugs, I would be eating, you know, pints of ice cream and bags of this and, and pizzas and, you know, just everything. And so what happened was I got sober. And I did that when I was um, 33 years old, by the grace of God. And I checked in to a facility. And when I checked in there, I let them know that the biggest fear for me of getting sober was that I was going to gain weight and that my eating disorder would be out of control. And I wouldn't be able to control it anymore. Because um, I was not somebody who dieted. I, I failed at every diet I ever tried. And they said, honey, it's okay. We're going to work on your, you know, the, the drugs and the alcohol first, and that needs to be put down, and then we're going to address your eating disorder. Well, that did not happen. And I'm going to say it was a week, a week of being there, and that was February of 2004. I gained a size, and then I proceeded to gain more weight, uh, about a size a month. And it was completely out of control, and I couldn't stop eating. And they brought me in, and they said, Sherry, you know, you're eating around the clock. Not only that, but every time I go to the store, you keep buying loads and loads of food. And I, and I, I said, yes, I need help. Um, I, I, this is like my main thing. My, my very first disease was eating. My very first addiction was food. And, of course, that one became the biggest one in my life. The other items and were things that I did because it was a faster way. Also, drinking, I could black out and, um, you know, blot out the, the consciousness of my life and my existence because I was, uh, didn't want to live. So drugs and alcohol and food helped with that. Um, I just, bear with me, I just, I found this journal. I was going to throw it out yesterday, and this was in 2004, and I kept notes from the time I was in rehab. So it's telling me every day some new, um, you know, um, oh, that's interesting. Never mind, my lights just went out in the car, so I, God does not want me to read that to you. Okay, I'm going to keep going and go with the flow. That was interesting, but I'll tell you the gist of it. The gist of it was, uh, went to lunch, had 
enormous amount of breadsticks, had this, had that, left there, went to Jack in the Box, got a burger, got fries, got a bag of cookies, got two tacos, ate it all within 20 minutes. And then I proceeded to try to make myself throw up, and I was successful. And um, and that really surprised me. And so that's, that's, that was the part that I wanted to share, because for so long in Overeaters Anonymous, and I, and I came into Overeaters Anonymous, which I'll get to in a second, um, in 2004, um, was that I identified out with people. So when people would say they were bulimic, I would say I was never bulimic. When people said they were 100 pounder, well, that would never happen to me. All of these things are now my reality and my truth. And finding this note yesterday about me being successful throwing up was mind-boggling because I, I, would have, I would have sworn in court that that is not part of my story, and yet there it is in my journal. So what does that tell me? Once again, the disease centers in my mind, and I can't use my mind to come up with a solution. Not only that, but at times I can't rely on my mind, right, even for the information. What I think is, you know, the true becomes the false, and the false becomes true. Um, you know, I, so, so I heard this at a meeting recently, and I also love this so much, is that, you know, um, how could I ever rely on myself you know, take advice from myself when I'm the only person in my life that's ever tried to kill me. And I really, uh, I love that, and, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So my mind can't come up with the, with the solution. But back to, you know, beginning the side. So within five months of being sober, I had gained five or six sizes. So I, the last time I weighed myself, and I showed up at the rehab at a size six, and I left there. Uh, about an 8 to a 10, and then within five months, I was up to uh, busting out of a size 16, which I had never been in my entire life. So what happened to me was I was in a department store buying yet another bigger size of something, six months sober, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, if this is what sobriety is, then I'm going to kill myself. And I, I really was uh, honest. I had tried before when I was in high school. Um, it was a, It was more of a getting attention attempts, but I knew that that kind of darkness was inside of me. I'm just not wanting to be here. Um, and I thank goodness that I was in the middle of my program, right? I was in the middle of the herd. I was doing all the work, and I was having spiritual experiences. Even though I was eating, there were transformations happening with my sobriety. And I shared this with a woman because in the big, in the front of my big book, it said our, our secrets will keep us sick. And it also said that my disease is waiting. My disease wants me dead, but will settle for drunk, right? So my disease wants me dead today, but will settle for me picking up food today. My disease, I really believe that my disease is a sniper in the bushes, and it's waiting to take me out. And that's why I have a daily reprieve. And I, and, um, and I can't wait to get to the recovery part, too. Uh, and also to the amends and, and the way that I sealed all of these relationships because that is the best part of the story that I don't, you know, what I said on the opening is that my mind, my thoughts and my, my behaviors and just my overall outlook on life has been completely transformed um, as a result of this. So I gained those six sizes. I'm suicidal. I told somebody at my AA meeting, and she suggested I call so-and-so who went to the HAL program. So I did that because I'm a good, you know, I, I really do take direction, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get help for myself today, and I feel like that is one of the biggest miracles. Um, and so I reached out to that meeting, 
Saturday morning, and I walked in, and I heard that they had to give up five ingredients. That's all I heard. No sugar, no flour. I think it was nuts, alcohol, and there was one other. Well, good. I had the alcohol one down, but the other one seemed ludicrous to me. So I left there, went to the store like any good binger, and this is what my life looked like before um, before I started getting the miracles of Obedience Anonymous, is I went to the store, and I would go down my aisles, and I would pick everything that I had never had or my favorite foods, and I would get those. And I'd go down the frozen aisle, and I would come home, and I would close the blinds, and I'd turn the TV on. And, and also, mind you, I never got married. I, I could not have an intimate relationship with anybody up, up until today. Uh, and, and so I lived alone, and I used to hide food from myself so I wouldn't find it. And I had this existence of just isolating just me, my best friends, which were the food, and the TV. This was my life, and um, I would eat so much food that I would pass out, actually, from, from the sugar, and, the, and my stomach would be so sick. And then I would come to, and then I would do round two, and then round three, and I would do this around the clock. So uh, it, was, it was on. I couldn't stop. I was hopeless. I was dying. I really thought that this is it for me. And then um, she, this person called me, and I went back the next week, and then the next week, I felt ready to put down the food, and so I did. And I started following that food plan, and I learned how to weigh and measure food um, for the first time. And I followed a food plan of three meals a day, nothing in between, and I answered a bunch of questions. And um, meanwhile, I had worked the steps in AA, and, um, and I, just, I got a lot of relief in, in there. And, but I was still, you know, in the food. So to me, it doesn't really, I mean, yes, it counted some, but it couldn't ever get me to a free state that I have today, which, um, you know, is, is a life today where I turn my will and my life over and I, I yield to what God wants me to have and, and, and do and be and say. And then I, I'm not invested in results today. So in, in essence, I have a very peaceful existence. And when I came in, um, like I said, I it was dark, deep, dark depression. And people, you know, I started getting outside help for my trauma, my childhood trauma. And I did that every single week for a few years. And, and it was very, very helpful. And I started making amends to people. And so I got into this food program, and, and the weight started coming off. And it was, it was great. And I was weighing and measuring, but there wasn't any freedom. I was chewing packs of gum, sugar-free gum, and I was drinking tons of sugar-free sodas. And I was just... It was like getting meal to meal to meal to meal. I was grateful that the weight came off, and I was also grateful that I had a new experience with my body at size 15, and I, and I started um, having a relationship with myself, looking in the mirror at the bigger size and started loving on myself in a way that I had never done before. So I feel like that was a huge gift. And, and, that, you know, and, and I started living my life, uh, whereas before I would hide in the apartment with, the food, um, I started, you know, the food went down, and I, I decided that I would just live my life, even at that size, when I was so ashamed and embarrassed of myself. I, you know, I put on a bathing suit, I went down to the beach, and I started living in, you know, swimming in the ocean and living life, and as a result, the weight started coming off, and I started um, going food plan. So then I realized that that program was really uh, punitive, and it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I found OV was anonymous, and 
the beginning of 2005, and I've been there ever since. So I really would like to talk about my journey in Overeaters Anonymous. But, um, and I really wish that the car light was working because I had this list here, but I'll just try to try to do it, and hopefully the sun will come up soon, and then I'll be able to um, read you some of the things that I wrote out. But um, this is I want to mention all of the things in Overeaters Anonymous that I tried to do um, that did not work. Um, number one, I thought that if I uh, if I just kept the weight off, that I was um, quote unquote in recovery, and that I, that it was okay to substitute food. So I tried substituting food because I really just wanted to keep getting comfort in food. But I knew that the big ticket items were not going to be part of my life anymore, and they haven't been. So you know, it's been 17 years since I've had a Reese's peanut butter cup. To me, that was a huge you know, it's been it's been many many years since I've had refined sugar. Um, uh, also, I picked an abstinence. Uh, you know, to me, it, it seemed like there was so it was such a gray area. And I go to some very strong meetings. You know, in Santa Monica and Brentwood, one of them is recorded. I mean, I, I live in a town of Los Angeles that's very um, full of recovery, and I have had all the best sponsors. Right? They all have long-term abstinence. They weren't doing the things that I was doing, but I still was not getting the message that I had something wrong with my body and my mind and that they were sickened, just like alcoholism. And the other thing I really want to mention is that I am a big book person. You know, I did the, I, I have done the steps throughout my time of being recovery, uh, in recovery. I just celebrated 17 years of being sober in the middle of the program. And I've worked the steps probably 16 times before finding a vision for you. I've done big book workshops. I've um, done her case workshops. I've done, I've done a lot of different work and willing to look at things, but none of it could address this issue that I had of compulsive overeating. And I think that for me it is very hard for a few reasons. Um, one, because nobody, there weren't any groups that were doing it like a vision for you. So, you know, so just, you know, to jump around, today, today the people who know me and they know me suffering in the rooms and they see that there has been this change that has happened. I have been recovered since November 3rd of 2019. Prior to that time, for years, they've seen me in the meetings, and yes, I might have been at a healthy body weight, but they would hear me sharing things such as, well, I'm, I'm going to take a candle today for, um, for not eating refined sugar, and it's Progress, not perfection, so it's okay that I just had a bag of skinny popcorn um, last week. Or, you know, I really want to, or a lot of the message is, I really want to go to the food today. I really want to go to the food today. And so I, I learned in that message. And the difference for me today is I don't ever want to go to the food. It hasn't even been a thought. Um, I, I couldn't, I just could not apply this big book. Thank you so much for this meeting, for a vision for you. I bring tears to my eyes that I found you. I found you by a fluke because I dialed in because because I moved uh, further away from the meetings. I couldn't get to meetings. I just started dialing phone meetings. And I, I called in, and, and, and the way that you do it, a paragraph at a time, sometimes two, was so needed for someone like me and someone like my brain. And then you were sharing specifically Oh, about recovery and the solution. 
and that your body was sick and like mine, and I could identify in, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've never even knew people were calling themselves recovered. I didn't know there was a way out, and, um, and I couldn't apply the big book. So all of those big book workshops and, and working the steps, and I couldn't apply it to the food. Why? Because I related too much to Bill. I, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. These stories of, you know, of, of they took a drink and then they woke up a week later, that was my story. So I never did that with food. So I, I, I couldn't identify in. It was really, really hard for me to, um, to transfer it over. And, I, and it wasn't until I found a vision for you that you helped me to do that by listening to you and how, and how you applied it to the food and to your eating and, and, to, um, and to this hopeless disease. And all of a sudden, I was having aha moment after aha moment of, oh, my gosh. Wow, I used to never identify with, I, I couldn't apply it. And now the whole book is actually, uh, I mean, I have I've completely switched gears, right? So like before, I was I, also the thing that didn't work is that being in multiple programs, I would make the food program, it would give, I would give it 30% or 40% of my time. Um, and I would, you know, I really felt like I needed to really focus in AA and Al-Anon and ACA and all these other programs, and the, and the food program was sort of like an afterthought. Like, if I just, I had it wrong. I had the cart before the horse, right? I, I thought if I, just, if I just keep going to therapy and I keep working the steps in this program, then that's going to help me. You know, that's going to be the, the solution. Or if I just stay away from the hardcore items, then that'll be the solution. If I only just let myself, if I allow myself, to compulsively overeat once or twice a week, well, that's surely better than a sheet cake. You know, I would do this comparison of, well, it's not this. It's not, I don't eat fast food anymore. And I would hold these things up that I thought I was doing, right, when I can see now that it was only as a result of actually working the steps, but also because of my higher power. I didn't do anything. God has done everything. And that that could never get me to freedom. Holding on to what I thought I knew could never give me freedom. So one of the best things that I did when I found A Vision for You was, um, and, and by the way, it, I, I'm a hard nut to crack with this eating disorder. And I am so grateful for, for miscellaneous reasons. You know, there wasn't any firing. Of, nobody fired me, and I didn't fire a sponsor. It wasn't like that. But just because of circumstances, I ended up working with five different Vision for You sponsors. And do you know that I am grateful for each and every one? The first one in 2018 is when I found Vision for You. I had just gotten engaged. I had just moved in with my husband, my, my then fiance. And I couldn't um, put down the faux desserts, the lookalike desserts. And I really, I, I never thought I could live without paleo muffins and vegan and raw and all these like healthy ingredients. I just, I needed that to survive. In order to do the day, I just needed my treat and I didn't think I could put it down. And the first woman that I ended up working with, we, I started having spiritual experience. We opened up the book and we, we started, she had me start at the title page, right? Just looking at the front cover and she wanted me to have a new experience. And I started having a brand new experience with this book. And I used the set-aside prayer. And for me, it was really hard because I came in with a whole bunch of knowledge about steps and all these things. And, um, and that wasn't serving me. And, and so with, with this woman, 
you know, there, there went the faux dessert, and I, and I put those down. And I, I thought that was a big miracle because at the time, too, we were planning my wedding, and, and I wanted to have, like, a paleo cake and this and that, and I had all these great ideas. And, you know, when it got closer to the wedding, because I started working these steps with her, I said, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to ever have dessert again, and I haven't had any, any faux dessert since that day. So that was the first level. And then the second one um, was a different level. And then finally, I let go of the crunchy items. That, that was, I was holding on to skinny popcorn. And, um, and I got rid of it with the third sponsor. And, and I love that. <laughs> I love like, the message at all. And I thank them so much. They may be listening right now. And um, I don't often, you know, mention names, but I do talk to them still. And they really help transform me. And that. I love the, the message that the, the one that got me completely free said. I was, you know, I don't know if you ever get these calls or not, but I, I get them now and I recognize me in the people calling me for help. They want me to sponsor them. They want what I have. They're so desperate. And then they want to give me the list of like everything and how great they are. And, and, how, and that was me, right? So I, I called her up and I remember saying, um, Oh, I'm, I'm desperate, I'm dying, and, but let me let you know that I've worked the steps 17 times, you know, I'm like holding this up as if I'm so great, right? It's so pride and ego, and I, I get that now. What, what needed to happen for me is to set aside my pride and ego and, and give it to God and say, and, then, and so she challenged me, and thank you. Thank you, because someone like me needs to be challenged. And she said, and has that worked for you to get you recovered? And that was such a beautiful question. And in that moment, it brings tears to my eyes that I was able to hear her. And I said no. And from that moment on, I sat on my hands, literally, when we talked. And she only had a time slot at 5.30 in the morning. And, um, and I got, we had a new puppy, and so I had to get up super early on a Saturday and a Wednesday to call her. And, you know, it didn't matter. I would have gotten up at 2 a.m., honestly. To, to get freedom, and, and and I did that, and I sat on my hands, and so when we read the big book, I, re- I got a brand new big book without all my notes and my highlights that I already had, and I really tried to not give information. I tried to not tell her what I already knew. Do you know what I mean? Like, like oh, oh, I've been through that chapter. I've done Joe and Charlie. I know that. No, I tried to, I just sat there, and I, and I just kept asking God, God, please help me have a new experience of this book. Help me to do something I've never done before, and help me to just completely stay in a surrendered state. And that's what really served me, not talking about my weight loss and this and that and all the great things I've done, but to talk about the desperate the, the fact is, is that I am a hundred, you know, I started identifying him and she was a hundred pounder and I, I identified with that. So how could I not? I gained six sizes in five months and it was, and the only reason why it stopped there was because I was, my bottom with that, but it could, it could definitely go further uh, inside of me. You know, I have a grandmother who died from this disease. who so had to sit on piano benches. Most, I didn't even talk about people in my family who have this disease, but everyone has this, a form of the eating disorder. You know, whether it was my, my real dad with the body obsession and looking at himself in the mirror and, and gaining weight and losing weight and gaining weight and, and my mom, same thing, up and down, up and down, different sizes. And my sister who tends not to eat. And my whole life I was comparing my body to her. And, it, and 
You know, I've learned to ask questions on recovery, and, and one of the things is, like, when I talked to her about that, she said that she doesn't eat. And my whole life, <laughs> I was comparing my body, you know, with, you know, here I was ingesting 2,000 calories a day or more, two, 3,000, you know, and I didn't even know. I'm not a calorie counter, but massive amounts of food. And, and then wondering why I didn't look like her. And, and then I was blaming it on, well, I wasn't born that way. And then I found out that she doesn't eat because she was strict. And, you know, that was such a great piece of information. So what lies am I telling myself? You know, that has been the biggest part. I, I can feel that this chair is very discombobulated and all over the place. So I, I really look forward, um, and, I, and I have more to talk about with the recovery, and I know I have some time, but I, I really look forward to the Q&A um, part because I love the focus of it. But I do want to share some miracles um, that have happened in terms of my new relationship with family members and others and myself as a result of working with that. And um, I'm trying to think of which one I want to share. Well, let, let's talk about the mom. So uh, let's talk about my mom. Uh, that was a very hard one for me, right? I'm resentful at her wife because, uh, because I told her what her husband did to me in recovery. You know, I had that honest talk with her and finally came you know, clean, and she still chose her husband over her daughter. Um, she chose to live with a molester instead of, you know, choosing her daughter. So that was, that was a tough one. That, that reinforced that the idea that I already had that I wasn't worthy of her love and that I wasn't important or significant and would have been better had I not been her. Um, I also was angry at her because of all of the love and, the, you know, attention that she gave and adored upon my sister and didn't give me any. That was very painful. And I was also um, angry with her because uh, because she never said I love you, and she just uh, wasn't there. You know, there was there was a big loss. This was a while ago when I did this uh, first, you know, resentment and intolerance. But here's the amount. So what I was taught is that I only look at my part, right? So I, I put out all those things that she did, and that who she should have been, right? And then. What was helpful for me in this situation um, was to write out a list of all the things that I liked about her, um, all the things that I was grateful for her, um, the things I admired in her. Like, I thought she was a good cook, so I wrote that down, and, and she was funny, and I wrote that down. And, um, you know, just there was a whole, and she was, uh, you know, asked, you know, she was, like, to go hiking, so I wrote that down. And then... I looked at my part, and I just got to look at it through the view of if I had a daughter like me, you know, what would what, 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 what that look like? And, you know, it wasn't pretty. So when I put it, when I did my part, I got to make amends for, I'm so sorry, Mom, for telling you that I hated you when we were in high school. I was acting out of my disease, and that's not who I wanted to be, and that's not the daughter I want to be, right? So I go to her, and I say, this is not the daughter I want to be. Let me set this right. And I put out of my mind, the things that I did not get, that she was not capable of getting, giving to me. And then um, and then throughout this process, I made a living amends where I called her every week. She lives in Florida, so I would call her every week and, and, and just try to be the daughter that I would want if I had kids instead of looking to her to be the mom that she could never be. And, that, that is, and, you know, and I've learned to meet people where they're at instead of where I'm at. So, you know, I'm the only one in my family who has a program although um, my sister is starting to have one now. And 
um, until I get to be the example. And so I did that. I took on a mother and daughter trip. I, I went to go live in London um, four years ago. Uh, I did this Shakespeare acting program at the London Academy. And it was amazing. I lived in a flat, and I invited my mom. My mom was born in England, and my grandmother was a war bride during World War II, and my grandfather was in the military and fought in three, three wars. So I do come from a military background. And I got to see my mom in a new light. She lived with this woman who, um, you know, was affected by having to live through the bombing and living in shelters and had trauma, right? And, and a lot of horrible things happened to my mom. And what I... What I got to see was I got to be grateful that it could have been so much worse in all these situations with my dad. Finding out what happened to him as a, as a kid was super helpful. Um, you know, and, and bringing my stepfathers to uh, therapy to try to get that feeling and to try to get to the forgiveness and so that he could be the dad that I would want um, for him to be. And I, I tried to give him that opportunity. That didn't work out very well, um, but I did, I did try and um, I could only do my part. So with my mom, I have learned to love her for who she is. I'm no longer triggered by her. She, she does not talk, you know, she doesn't call at all. So if I went a whole year and didn't call her, she would be okay with that. She doesn't, intimacy, I guess that's like an intimacy thing. She likes to communicate um, via social media. And, and it's okay. I accept her and I love her for who she is today. And even though I don't have bonding with her, like I said, like I, I don't feel a mother-daughter connection, um, I still know that God brought her into my life for a reason, and I treat her like I would any, any child of God. And um, I want to say, um, well, I could talk so much about so many different amends that I did, and I'm just looking at my notes because the sun just came out. And that's fantastic. The, the relationship with my sister was the hardest one to overcome, honestly. She was the one that showed up on 16 different inventories, and I took her to therapy, and I took breaks from her for a year at a time during my recovery because every time I was in her presence, uh, I wanted to kill myself. Like, that was the thought. It's, there, there, it was like she sucked all the oxygen out of the room, and there wasn't any left for me. And I, I just, the, the, the coming from no self-esteem and then being around somebody who is just a complete self-esteem, like, look at me, everyone, look how wonderful I am, it was so painful, so painful. And, and you know, it was somebody in this group, and I reached out, and I, on the 8 o'clock um, call with the question and answers, I love that, I try to get on that every day, the vision call, and I asked a question, like, what do you do with the inventory that just keep popping up and you can't be free with it, and somebody a wonderful woman called me and took the time, and I did a thorough inventory with her, and I found out that that was the disease. I was holding on to the disease, thinking about it. And what was I getting from the story of my sister being beautiful and me being ugly was that I could live my life in a way that um, that I just never had to really, you know, live to my full potential, let's say, or or, you know, keeping these stories were, were keeping me in the disease because, like I said, the disease is a sniper in the bushes waiting to take me out. So the disease mind will always find these stories. So I was able to really look at it from a different lens, and finally I have freedom from it. And now she's trying to get sober, right? And I have 17 years, and she has, like, 60 days, and she's been reaching out to me, and I've been able to be there, and I have no triggers with her. 
I don't want to be her. I'm happy with who I am. And I, one of my favorite prayers, I think I'm running out of time, and I'm going to go to the Q&A, and I didn't talk about a lot of things that I had on here, and that's okay because it, 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 um, I trust that that's what God wanted me to do. But a couple of my favorite prayers, and I think I'll end there and then open it up, is um, that God, I forgive anyone and everyone who has ever harmed me at any time at, um, and under any circumstance. I love that prayer of forgiveness. And also, dear God, <laughs> thank you for everything you have given me, everything you have taken away, and everything that's on its way. And I love that one so much. And I just want to say in closing that this last year, through the pandemic, through my husband having cancer, through me having to have a surgery, through me losing income, through my husband retiring, through my husband and I having very big marital problems and sitting in an unresolved conflict on a daily basis where I don't know if it's going to work or it's not going to work, and I'm just getting a lot of outside help. Um, through now moving out of state, we're moving to Wyoming for a new adventure. All of these things and more, and I have had one of the most joyful years of my life because I'm recovered and I have my high, I have a relationship with my higher power that's in and through me as opposed to just reading prayers like I used to do. It's a part of my everyday life and I have been able to meet all of these things with serenity, with calmness, with how can I be useful, how can I keep looking at my part, what can I do to change things. Um, how, what would God have me be today? And and I, for me to say that last year was one of the best years, well, not only did I get to see a lot of you in person on Zoom meetings and connect with people on the East Coast and these groups that I'm now part of and these fellows and this, you know, the, it's the gift of the fellowship that has just grown substantially for me and where I used to put Overeaters Anonymous as 30%, 40%, and where I could only get, like, 80% recovery, you know, I'm in a recovered state, which means that I never even thought about going to food for any of these issues, nor do I. And um, I put over, you know, this program to me is my priority. It's, it's, been, it's number one, and I do everything as outlined exactly as you guys have shown me how to do by listening to your special edition, by uh, listening to the phone lines every day and being part of this group. You have saved my life. You have transformed it. And again, thank you is not a big enough um, statement to say for what you've given me. And I look forward to um, any questions and answers. And thank you again for letting me be of service. Thank you, Sherry, for your remarkable and inspiring story of recovery. Thank you for so generously sharing with all of us about your life, which has been transformed as a result of the 12 steps. Thank you so very much. Sherry's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. The share ID for today's presentation is 16,446. That's 16446. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Sherry, questions only please, by pressing star one to unmute. And I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Hi, we are in Oregon. 
A. Mary Lee R. Stacy A. Stacy A. Yes, ma'am. Camera C. Camera C. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. I have Mary Lee R. Stacy A. And Tamara C. Kim T. Sherry. Kim T. And did I hear a Sherry? Yes, W. In Nevada. Okay. Thank you. Very good. All right. Please mute everyone except for Mary Lee R. Good morning, Maria, and fellow potmates. Um, wow. Thank you. Could you share a little bit about what your um, daily routine is for um, keeping you in such a wonderful place in recovery? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Jane, for the question. And I, you know, that's a big question. Um, anyway, I wake up around 4.30 during the week, and I get up and have a book for seven and Sherry, the the line is very. Uh, How about now? Better, much better. Okay, I just turned the volume up. Okay, thank you. Uh, I get up at four thirty in the morning, and I have around six daily readers that I read, and then I do two way prayer, um, which is a new practice that I've been doing for a few months, and I write that out, and then I um, sometimes I, I quickly listen to the playback of the um, earlier meeting the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, just so that I can get what paragraph we're on if I haven't had a chance to read it. And then I get in my car, and I get on the live uh, 8 a.m. Uh, meeting, a vision meeting, and then I often get on the 7 a.m., and it's not that I'm either bringing them back or I'm on them every day, so I'm either doing one to two hours of vision meetings a day, on Friday. And in addition to that, I attend uh, Zoom meetings and my other programs as well. I uh, sponsor, so every day I'm talking to a sponsee, and I'm reading the big book with them or working on a different step, whatever step we're on. I also do daily, uh, doing 10 steps all day to stay in, uh, in fit spiritual condition. So the minute I have a disturbance, I try to resolve it right then and there. If not, I write it down, and I do it when I of the time, and I make a lot of outreach calls, and I, I pray, and I stay connected to my higher power, and I stay connected to fellows, so uh, I, I would say, and then sometimes I attend an evening uh, Zoom meeting um, away, uh, but I really, you know, I, I'm really utilizing the freer time that I have right now with the schedule, and, and the whole day really revolves around. Uh, my higher power and getting access to that higher power and talking to fellows to get the message that God wants me to hear as well. And um, and then I follow, uh, you know, just the logistics of it. You know, I have, I, I commit my food the day before, and then at the end of the day, I actually send what I had, and that, that seems to be working for me. That's different. When I was newly getting recovered, I did it much more, um, you know, I did a different process, but that's what's working for me now. And, uh, you know, when I, you know, before I had my surgery, I was playing tennis, so I'm active, and I, I just picked up that sport last year, and 
this is, I didn't mention that, but when I came into program, I couldn't even walk up the steps without being completely winded and out of shape. And, you know, now I consider myself to be in the best physical, you know, I, I just feel very fit. Um, and that's part of my physical part of, uh, you know, making amends to my body is to also move my body and walk and, and be fit. So anyway, thanks so much for the question, Mary. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Mary Lee R. Our next, our next question comes from Stacey A. Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for your share. Um, you talked about a prayer, like, you know, when you're resentful to friends or something. Remember, you, you were saying in your share. May I just ask you to share a little more about that? Because right now I'm struggling with a friend that I'm kind of really resentful to and stuff like that, and I'm really struggling. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much, Stacey, for that. So um, before I go to the prayers, I immediately put it through the lens of um, – and what, what step are you on, Stacey? I, I, I'm honestly just – I'm like a newcomer. I'm, I'm like a newbie. So I'm not even there, but it's, it's like I'm like – I'm, I'm Got it. So when yeah. So when when I when I was new and on step one, then I yeah. used uh, I used the serenity prayer, you know, and I, I broke it down and I wrote on one side of the page, I'm powerless yeah. over and yeah. then I wrote down everything I wrote down everything that I was powerless over and then mm-hmm. on the right hand side I wrote down everything I did have power over and what I could do with it, uh, which is my um, thoughts and actions. So, you know, that seemed to be very helpful. Uh, praying for somebody, uh, you know, in our big book, I think that somebody, Leia can probably tell me, but there's a chapter called Freedom from Bondage. Yes, yeah, someone and, said that. Yeah. And, and so we can pray for people's health and happiness and prosperity for two weeks. And usually that helps to lift. But I, I would just get into the steps as soon as I could. And, um, you know, you can, you can keep, you know, start a resentment list and, and you already have your first name. So when you get to the fourth step and it, this will be in, you know, this will be resolved via the step. We put down the food and we work the steps like our life depends on it. Did you let so that that's how I have this year. Yeah. You Thank you. Time? Thank you very much, KCA, for your question. Appreciate that. Moving on to Tamara C. Star 110 Mute. Hi. Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for your story. It was very, very helpful to me. I I especially loved how you shared about even though you had been through the steps uh, so many times, you really prayed to set aside your ego and have a new experience. So I wanted to ask if you could share a little bit of um, uh, in that new experience and that time of going through the steps, um, what shifted, if anything, in your perspective of your higher power and or maybe how your higher power sees you? And um, also, like, where was your higher power in your new perspective um, in your childhood and the painful parts of your childhood? Thanks. That is the best question. Hi, Cameron. Nice to hear your voice. Um, thank you for that question, and the most important part of this whole story is my higher power, right? So so the new experience that I had was uh, 
Well, it was well. First of all, I never had gone through the book before and 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 highlighted instructions. I didn't even know that there. I didn't know there was such a thing as instructions, warnings, promises. I mean, I knew there were prayers, but I didn't know about the other things. So looking at it through that lens and actually highlight pulling out warnings and death threats and um, and seeing like wow, encircling words. And the new experience I had was I started looking upwards. Even though I knew the definition of all these words, I mean, I'm a smart person. They, um, that's so funny. I never talked about what I did to my career, but that's okay. Um, I, I circled words, and then I looked up the meaning, and then I wrote them out on the page. So in that way, it really came alive. And listening to the big book meetings, right, and all my big books, um, you know, just pulling out the book, and, and then I hear what someone else says, and I, I love that, and I adopt it for my own, and I – and that's a new experience. So, and it keeps changing and evolving. And I have to tell you, the big book, really, I had a new experience, not so much when I was being sponsored, but when I started taking other people quickly through these steps, that's when the big book really came alive for me. Um, and I, don't, I, don't, I can't explain that except for I was seeing things that I hadn't seen even when I was being sponsored. So that was a beautiful thing. And in terms of my higher power, so uh, based on... You know, I gave you a few little snapshots of my childhood, and it wasn't pretty. And when I when I came into program, not not only there was a I went to Catholic school, so it was inconsistent. Um, I didn't have a problem with that God at all. It just was inconsistent in my family. And then there was a time when we knew a whole bunch of born again Christians in our neighborhood, and so in my, we had a lot of prejudice. So every time somebody would say the word God or Jesus, especially. Oh my God! I would just, you know, loser. This is crazy. You know, I had such contempt, right? Cut to, I, I was desperate and dying, and I needed to find a power. And they told me the power couldn't be me, but I had to find it. That, that was how I made my beginning. So I went down to the ocean. Somebody said, try to make the, you know, the waves stop, and I could not. And, and there was my power. So nature was my power, and then my high, my relationship with my higher power has grown. Um. I came from a belief that God didn't want me, right? You know, I think that we develop our relationship with the higher power based on our parents. How can we not? Those are like the, those are the big people, right? I'm a small little child, so I look up to them, and they're the first, so it's sort of like what kind of relationship do I have with my parents? Well, I had a relationship that made me, I, I wasn't wanted or loved or cared for. I was abandoned. I was abused. I was neglected. Uh, you know, all of these things happened to me. Um, and, and, and so, and of course I thought that God didn't want anything to do with me. And so for me, it, it was just, it was just a matter of being willing, right? It's the set aside prayer. Am I willing to see that I'm not the power? And so I pretty much fudged my way through the beginning. I remember being in rehab and they wanted me to do step two and I acted as if I had a higher power. I don't know that I fully believed it, then it didn't matter because shortly after, and cut to, that's all I talk about now is God. And, and I laugh at my prejudice, and I, and I, and I look at this, and, and there's a part in the We Agnostics that was so helpful. You know, where were my prejudice? Where, what is this contempt prior to I had a, so much contempt prior to investigation, and the funny thing is, is I consider myself to be reborn now. I was reborn the minute I got sober, right, when I was 33. My life before then was a big blackout haze of addiction. And, and, I, and I really, you know, today I can go into a mosque. I can go into a temple. I can go into a Catholic church 
I could go to the nature and I can find my higher power anywhere I go because it resides inside of me. And it's the deep fact, I think, for everyone is that it's inside. And I think that's what addiction was all about is me trying to, um, you know, start, you know, trying to get that feeling, that, that feeling. And, and then the only other thing I want to say about this and what, what made all the difference, what, what is the difference between being recovered and then being in recovery and still holding on to the food was the thing, the very thing I was so afraid of giving up was, was any comfort in food. I thought I would die, honestly, um, even with all this program and all these steps. And then the minute I did, what happened was that everything got so much lighter and, and it was like now all of a sudden instead of just saying the third step prayer and acting as if I'm doing the third step prayer, I was really doing the third step prayer. Like it was inside of me. And now I, 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 my, my first go-to is my higher power, right? My first go-to for everything is God is in the car with me. God is with me. I didn't need God the way I needed, the way I need God now because I still had food. So I think either I have, either I'm reaching for the food or I'm reaching for God. And because of being recovered and how you guys have shown me how to do it, and listening to your message of how you got to a higher power and the connection than I've been able to as well. And I adapt, you know, and it evolves. When I hear other people say things about their higher power, I use those as well and, and just adopt them. I'm constantly learning and growing and changing, and what worked for me yesterday won't work for me today necessarily. So I really have to keep seeking and seeking. And, um, and there's somebody who I really admire on the East Coast in program. And she, you know, was talking about spending 30 minutes with God and developing that higher power um, and, and the relationship. I'm not yet, I don't yet sit there for 30 minutes at a time, but God is with me all day long. And, I, and my mind feels very peaceful. And I feel like I'm, whatever moment I'm in is the moment that I'm in. Um, so anyways, that's a long answer so nice for the question. Thank you, Tamara. Yes, thank you, Tamara. Okay, our next question comes from Kim T. Good morning. This is Kim T. Compulsive, Recovered Compulsive Reader in Denver. Thank you so much for your share today, Sherry. I was. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, that went. Weird. Um, I had prayed for someone to to hear someone on the line today that I could ask a question of, and uh, God definitely answered my prayer. So I have a question for you and around your sister, and you said I think you, you had on 16 of your inventories, and I have a brother, different circumstances, but really the same, right, um, that he keeps showing up on my inventory. So did the change happen that you felt differently toward her, when she started going to meetings or what, or when you became recovered, I, I, if you said that, I apologize, I missed it, or I, I didn't hear you say it anyway. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question. It's a really good question. And I think all these relationships and things, you know, they, some of them take longer than others um, in my experience. And I believe it's all like in God's time. But the, the main gist is that I couldn't accept her for what she did because it had such a reflection on me. So every single inventory was the same thing. I resented her for posing in a magazine. I, I resent her from even current day. You know, she's seven years older than me. She looks younger than me. You know, I resent her for her look. 
I resent her for posting pictures in bikinis on social media. Like these, these kept showing up every year, every year, every year. And and when I finally did this, approached it from a different angle. At, you know, when we got to when I got to the dishonesty. So what am I making this mean? And why do, why am I personalizing this as if it has anything to do with me at all? Her behavior has nothing to do with me. But the truth is, is that when I am connected to God, then she could be walking around naked and I wouldn't be disturbed. You know what I mean? So what, what I found was that there was a story I was making up, but it was ultimately my disconnection from God. And I have to assume that it's because I'm recovered and because I dug deeper into the story behind it that I could learn to, you know, and then this makes me sad, but this, this also came out um, in, in the writing of it, of that, that God, what would God have me be? I'm so afraid of, you know, like I was afraid of my husband seeing my sister's photos in bikinis because then it's certainly he'd want to leave me for her. And that's the story. So right there, we can circle that and say that's the disease part of the story. And that was the theme of my life up until 49 years old, right? My whole life, that's how I felt. If somebody sees my sister, they're going to want to be with her. Why do I have this fear? Well, because as a kid, adults would come up to me and ask me, Sherry, where's your sister? <laughs> they never said, like, how are you doing, Sherry? It was all, everything about her. So it really had nothing to do with her looks, but it had more to do with the feeling inside of me and this, like, resentful feeling that was deep down. And what I got to, through my higher power, and being recovered and out of the food is the only reason I think that this is happening is that God wanted me to love her. Like, God God brought me to sobriety and recovery first because God wants me to be an example. Like, I have the program. And so I started praying for her, and which I have done over the years. But I started looking at her as a sick child of God, and the sick man's prayer has helped me tremendously. And, and I could see that the reason why she does these things is because she also has low self-esteem. We both you know, grow up in different circumstances, but the same. And that even though my low self-esteem manifests in an eating disorder where I stuff my face, you know, if I feel horrible about myself, I eat, hers is the opposite because she looks a certain way physically. But we have at the core the same thing. So when I started treating her as a sick person like I'm sick, and I started looking at it from a different angle and seeing that if I could get out of my own way, and I could get a, and it's ego. So again, it comes back to pride and ego. I developed this uh, really, you know, this sense of ego where like I don't feel worthy, but yet I want everyone to like think of me as number one. You know, like I want to be the number one. My sisters, and it's like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. So I I started to see it for what it was, which is disease thinking. I started praying, and and. And, yeah, I don't even know that her, you know, you're asking about is it because she's in program. Now, she has been off and on trying to get sober most of the time that I have been, and it hasn't stuck, and she gets 60 days and goes back out. And, 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 and when I could look at my recovery as, like, the biggest gift that I've been given and think, like, how could I withhold that from her? I, 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 have, all the, I have everything that I need because I have God in my heart, and so I, I have enough. Um, you know, I can give to her in a way that nobody else probably can. I think God made, God brought, I truly really trust, like, thank you, God, for bringing her in my life. So 
thank you that this is my sister because there was deeper work for me to do spiritually, and I can work on that. And the other thing that really did help me is to know my spiritual limitations. And so, you know, if, if, if every day I'm doing 10 steps around social, for instance, then, then, you know, I need to also, like, see, like what, what can I do to fix the situation? Well, I can get off social media. Like, if I don't look at it, I'm not disturbed by what she's doing. And it just so turns out that by me doing that and not saying anything to her, and I kept praying for her, the other day, it was just three days ago, we were talking, and she told me she hit a bottom with her social media because she, she was using it as an addiction. So I didn't have to say or do anything because God, God just does every, it just all works. If I just keep focusing on my side of the street, keep seeing what, what I can do differently, how can I show up as a better sister, how can I be an example of God's truth and love and purity because that's all that really matters anyways. Um, then, then things can happen and shifts can be made with other people that have nothing to do with me getting involved. I hope that answers. Thanks so much, Kim, for the question. Yes, thank, thank you, you. T. Thank you. Sherry W., your turn to pose a question. Thank you so much for your share, Sherry. I totally relate to about 95% of it. Um, instead of the sister, it was the brother in my particular situation, and I used uh, other things so I wouldn't eat. My question to you is this. Um, do, and I know that sponsors sponsor, from what I've been told, according to how they've been sponsored, um, I know people who talk to their sponsors every day. How often should I expect to be talking to my sponsor Um, because I'm so afraid that if I only talk to her once or twice a week and I'm not replacing her with God, he's number one. So what should be my expectations for how often I should talk to a sponsor? Thank you. Thank you so much, Sherry, for the question. That's actually, that was one of the things I was actually going to talk about. So, yeah, so, you know, when I'm working you know, when we're newly going through the big book and trying to get recovered, right, from step one to step 12, every sponsor is different. So I have worked with different sponsors. I have worked with one that we talked five days a week for 30 minutes. I worked with one that we, we talked twice a week for an hour, um, you know, read the big book. I could call her in between if I wanted. Um, and, and I work differently. It depends on my schedule and the person, and we kind of work it out with a flexible schedule. Um, I think probably in the beginning it, we need to talk to our sponsors a little more, especially if we're brand new. But I have to say that I, I actually feel I was thinking about this. And I was going to share it because of a vision for you and becoming recovered with this daily way of practicing life, working all the steps every day, and especially 10, 11, 12. I have made my sponsors obsolete in a way. Where prior to a vision for you, I, I, and I have multiple sponsors for long, many years. So I came into vision for you with three sponsors, and I have a step diet from a vision for you currently. Uh, and I used to talk to them at least once or twice a week, all of them, minimum. You know, something would happen in my life, and I'd want to call and share about it. And what I had found, and this was one of the things that has really helped me to stay out of food, I think, is because I was... It wasn't that I was in like, oh, why is this happening? I don't really identify too much with self-pity. 
But I, I did want someone to say, I wanted the comfort of someone saying, oh, you know, like, oh, I see what you're going through. Like, I wanted to be seen and heard. And what I found was telling the story of what was going on in my life about any situation was just perpetuating the disease. And now what I do is I, I run it through the 10 steps. And because I do that and then I go to God or I turn it over with a fellow or I turn it over with my step guide, um, or sometimes I type them out and send them to sponsors, but regardless, irregardless, by doing that process, it, it, the need to call a sponsor to go over something, actually I have found to be detrimental in a sense. So I have some marital things going on. And by bringing it through the lens of the 10th step and continuing to look at my part and try to do my living amends and, and, and go to my relationship ideals, and now I'm seeking outside help in different areas that I'm falling short. I can see that my childhood trauma has been triggered ever since I moved in with him two years ago, and that and the pandemic has exacerbated it substantially. And this is my stuff. I had no idea that I had anger inside of me. Honestly, I was a people pleaser my whole life. I had a little bouts of anger, you know, but these things that have been revealed to me, I can go get help with. And if I was to call, let's say, my AA sponsor and tell her about my marital problems, um, what's going to end up happening is that she's, she's going to agree with everything I'm saying, like that's horrible, then we're going to hang up the phone, and I am not going to feel any better whatsoever. In fact, it's going to leave me feeling icky, and I don't want that icky feeling because that icky feeling is going to lead me back to the food. Because then I can say, like my disease wants me to say, see, this situation is icky. A little food would help you. I mean, I'm, I'm certain that that would happen. And because I live this recovered way of life, um, I do, I do stay in touch. I call them all once a week. You know, I do night, well, this is the thing. I do nightly reviews, right? I do my 11-step nightly review. I have an app, so I'm current with every single sponsor. I send it to all of them every night, and I don't miss a night. And then if I have, like, an inventory to go over, I call them. But other than that, um, unless I'm turning over a step, I don't really have that much contact with sponsors like I used to. Like I said, I would call them all for this, you know, different information, and they would all lead me back to God, which I thought was funny because they didn't know each other. But I don't need to because I have the temptation, and I have my higher power. And if something really was troubling, then I would call them. So I know that's really even not a concrete answer for you, but I, I have just uh, found um, that, you know, the, the main job of the sponsor is to take somebody through the big book, right? It says that. It, it, sponsor isn't even mentioned in the big book, that word. And, you know, I know that my job, I call myself more of a step guide, of a, a spiritual, you know, someone who's trying to get someone to have a spiritual experience. I'm guiding them through the big book so that they can, so that my job can be done because I'm a human power and only the higher power is ever going to keep me recovered. And, and I have access to that now because people took the time to take me through the steps. But that doesn't mean that I would talk to them all the time. And, and I, like I said, I have found it possible to go to the steps first and then, and then I would go to them. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks, Sherry. We have time for one more question. Anyone else have a question they'd like to pose? Karen R. Karen R., you're the one. Go right ahead. 
Hi, um, I'm new to uh, OA Recovery. I'm in another step program. And my question is, is, you know, I'm really getting so much from these meetings. And I love the speakers, but I'm having, um, I don't know how I'm trying to say it, but how do I go about getting a sponsor? Like what worked for you? Um, you know, I hear people that share, and I, and I, I relate so much to what they share, but what do you suggest for a newcomer, somebody who's been to a few meetings, to get a sponsor? Yep, that's a great question, and I can help you. If I can tell you my experience with that. Thank you so much, Karen. And welcome, welcome, welcome. You're very welcome here. So I did a number of things. So I would hear somebody share on the phone meeting, and I would go into the member contact list. I still do this for outreach, but I would write down their name and number, and then I would contact them and see if they were available sponsor. That was one way that I did it. Um, another way, and one of my favorite ways, was that I would, you know, call, you know, at the end of the 8 a.m. live call. There, I think there are more sponsors available than sponsees who need them. The, the, the amount of service that people do here with a vision for you is incredible. So there are always recovered sponsors, and they, and they list their names. And I, I think that uh, what, what really helped me to become recovered from someone who was in multiple programs with a long time in all these programs was I just, you know, I just called somebody, and I stopped interviewing them. And I, you know, I, I was so desperate that I, you know, I used to ask, like, how long are you in program? And what's your experience? And blah, blah, blah. Here's, here's what I know. It is important to talk to someone and see if there's a connection. You know, there's different personalities for different people. So one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, maybe I'm going to jive better with someone who's, you know, more, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like an A-type person. You know, like I like to send the assignments, get the assignments. Uh, that's how I operate, but someone else may be more talky and want to spend hours on the phone, and that's okay, too. So the best thing that I can suggest is, and I would definitely highly recommend getting a vision for you sponsor, someone who's been through the work this way and who's recovered, and especially someone who's talking about their higher power. You know, if that's what they're leading with, that's just a great – I don't think you could go wrong with anybody. And like I said, my experience is I work with five different people. So – they, they, it took a village for me, you know. So it's not just like a, my experience is it, five different people took me through the big book, and, and it was rewarding on all levels working with all of them. And so I, I, just, I, I just say that if, if we're in step one and we need someone, we just grab on to anybody. You just call, just, if you call tomorrow morning and you get on the line, I think it's 7, what time is it? Well, it's it's 5:50 my time, so 8:50 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're going to have you're going to need a pen and paper because there'll be pen available, and I think they also have time and they give them out at the end of the 10 a.m. as well. But I have found more luck with the um, the unrecorded meeting. So I hope that helps. And um, yeah, thank you so much for the question. Thank you everyone for their questions, and thank you again for letting me be of service. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the question, Karen R., and welcome to you. And thank you so much, Sherry, for your inspiring and remarkable presentation this morning. So touching and moving and just a great example of the power of the implementation of the 12 steps and a relationship with God. So thank you so very much. Again, the Sherry ID 
for today's presentation, 16446 That's 16446. And we're going to close now from page 164, a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>